Good morning, everybody. Go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, we're going to be looking at the end of chapter 4, looking at verses 23 through 25. So go ahead and turn there with me if you want to. So we are starting our series on the Sermon on the Mount this week. We're calling it Kingdom Come. It's all about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus, and it describes what a life looks like that's lived in Jesus's kingdom. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. And so we're going to take a running start this, this week and look at the passage directly before the Sermon on the Mount. Let me read verses 23 through 25. Mark chapter, or Matthew, sorry, Matthew chapter 4, 23 through 25. This is what it says. It says, and he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, this is Jesus, obviously. He went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all of Syria, and they brought him all of the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And then verse 1, it says, And seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Okay, this is the passage right before the very famous sermon on the, on the mount. And so a question I want to ask us today that we're going to spend the rest of our time unpacking is, what is the gospel of the kingdom? What is the gospel of the kingdom? It says in verse 23 that Jesus is going around. He's traveling all around the, the northern area of, of, of Israel, which is Jesus' hometown. It's kind of more of the backwoods, less developed area. He's traveling all around, and it says he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So if you're like me, you know, you grew up hearing that the gospel was the four spiritual laws, right? God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life, but our, we are sinful and separated from him, but Jesus died so that if we put our trust in him, then we can be reconciled to him and we can have eternal life, right? And that is the gospel. But is that, what is Jesus going around teaching people? Is he going around proclaiming, I love you and have a wonderful plan for your life? but you're sinful and separated from me. But don't worry, I'm gonna die. I'm gonna rise again. So if you trust in me, is that what he's saying? Well, kind of. That's definitely things he says a lot. He definitely talks about the fact that God loves us. He talks about sin. He talks about his death. He talks about the need to put our faith in him, to be forgiven of our sins and have eternal life. He talks about that. But I think we have a clue about what Jesus's message sounds like what is, how is he approaching the gospel? How is he preaching the gospel? I think that we have a clue from that word kingdom. It says that he went about teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So um, if you grew up in the church, you might know, or if you heard this before, you might know that the word gospel in Greek, it literally means what? It literally means good news. It means good news. 
right? And news is something, it's not just good advice, it's good news. And news is something that has happened and the result of which is that things are different, that your life has been impacted somehow. So what is the good news? Well, it's very interesting that in the Roman Empire in the first century at that time, that the word gospel was not unique to the Jewish people. It wasn't unique to the Jewish people. It was a term that got used somewhat frequently within the Roman Empire, even among people that weren't Jewish. But what's interesting is it wasn't a primarily religious term. It was a primarily political term, okay? There's, um, there's a lot of inscriptions, if you go back to the, the first century and then kind of just uh, around 10 BC, that area, um, there, you can find a lot of inscriptions on statues and things like that that talk about Caesar Augustus. And it says, because Caesar Augustus, the background there is um, in about 27 BC, Caesar Augustus, he takes control over the Roman Empire. And before then, things were chaotic. There was a lot of infighting. There was a lot of civil war. And things were really, they were really bad. And then Caesar Augustus takes over in 27 BC. And then that was kind of a turning point. Things started to become more peaceful. Life started to become better things started to become more stable. And so you'll see a lot of inscriptions on statues, on placards, on things like that, also written, written things that say that, that they'll, they'll talk about Caesar, that, man, we were doing so poorly before, but then in 27 BC, I didn't say BC, but, you know, in that time, um, Caesar came, he took control, and things have been better since then. And what they would call it is, they would call it, the gospel of Caesar Augustus. They call it the gospel of Caesar Augustus, the good news that Caesar Augustus had taken control of the empire and we're all better for it. Right, so that was the gospel. And what's really interesting is that that is very similar to the way that the word gospel or the term good news is used in the Old Testament too. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah 52, verse 7. This is a pretty well-known passage, too. And look at what it says when it talks about the good news. Look at what the good news, the contents of the good news is in this passage. Okay, this is a, a well-known passage talking about the, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet that bring good news. I'm just going to read it here. So it says in Isaiah 52, verse 7, it says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Right? And that word good news, again, is the same word as our word gospel. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. So in Isaiah 52, the gospel of God, the good news that's being preached to God's people is that your God reigns, that God sees you, that God himself, he's coming to you and he is going to rule over you as your king. He's going to rescue his people and he's going to defeat his enemies and he's going to usher in this time of, of peace and prosperity. That was what the gospel 
was. So kind of what we see is that the gospel is a little bit like this. Go ahead and put that next picture up there. The gospel is a little bit like this. You guys seen the movie Lion King? Where it's at the beginning of the movie where it's like, you know, the, the king has a son and in a, in a monarchy, it's like the stability of the realm is, um, is are you going to be able to have a son that's going to carry on the, on the monarchy? And so they take, they take Simba, the, the, young, the young lion, the, the, king, the son of, of, of the king lion, and they say, this is the king. Say, behold your king. Isn't this a little bit similar? I think about in the Gospel of Luke, when the shepherds come or when the angels come to the shepherds, what do they say? They say, behold, We've come to tell you good news of great joy for all people, that today in the city of David, a Savior is born, who is Christ the Lord. It's kind of their way of taking the baby Jesus and holding him up. I don't know if the circle of life was playing or not, but like, this is your king. This is your king. And your king is going to come. He's going to reign over you, and things are going to, to get better. He's going to rescue his people and he's gonna defeat his enemies, and he's gonna rule justly over the world, okay? Now, what does this all have to do with the Sermon on the Mount? Well, go ahead and put the next picture up there. So the Sermon on the Mount, in the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is basically doing, he's inviting us to live a life where he is at the center of our life. He's inviting us to live a life where he is on the throne of our life, where he is the king of our life. So in this, in this picture, in this circle, there's a chair in the middle of it. The circle represents somebody's life, represents your life. And then the chair in the middle of the circle represents a, a throne. And this is, this is a, I stole this from, from a, this is a classic uh, crew or campus crusade diagram. But the, thro- the, the chair in the middle is a throne. And the idea is that Jesus is inviting us to live a life where he is at the center of our life, where he is on the throne of our life as our king, and every single other aspect of our life, whether it's our, our money, our relationships, the way we approach religion, the way we approach entertainment, the way we approach our hobbies, the way we approach family, the way we approach sex, that all of these things are focused on Jesus and taking their cues from Jesus and centered on on Jesus, where he is reigning over his people as as their king. And what the Sermon on the Mount does is it kind of breaks apart our life and it talks about different areas of our life and it basically says, this is what it looks like to live a life with Jesus at the center as your king. You wanna know what it looks like to solve conflict with Jesus at the center of your life? Sermon on the Mount. You wanna know what marriage, how we approach sex, how we deal with things like lust and divorce? Well, the Sermon on the Mount talks about that. How do we, how do we spend our money? How do we manage our finances? The Sermon on the Mount talks about that, right? It's all about how to live a life that's centered on Jesus. And you know, some of you, and I wanna speak for a second, especially to, to you, you younger people, because uh, you know, middle school, high school, college students, I think that there's a lot of voices today that, that kind of that hear this, and maybe you feel this, maybe you don't feel this, or maybe some of you, uh, maybe some of you that are older feel this too, where it's kind of like, that's just sort of controlling. 
I don't know if I, why does Jesus want to be all grabby, controlling of, of my life? I mean, is he just on a power trip? What's the deal there? I want to take a second and, and address this because what Jesus is saying here is not that Jesus just wants to boss you around. It's not that Jesus is mean or something like that. Jesus knows something that is very, very true, but that we often forget, which is that as much as we might like to pretend that we can say, I'm not going to do what anybody says. I'm just going to do what I say. Nobody is my king except for me. I don't serve anybody but myself. As much as we might like to think sometimes that we can live a life where we just do whatever the heck we want to do, the truth is really we have two options. Either we can submit to Jesus as the true king and experience what life was designed to be like, or on the other hand, we'll end up submitting ourselves to something else, centering our lives around something else and being enslaved by a lesser master. Now, those are the two choices, that we can either submit to Jesus, the true king, and find out the way life was designed to be lived, or we'll end up centering our life around something else and be enslaved to a lesser master. Okay, this is why in Matthew 11, it says Jesus, he looks out at the people and he says, he says, if anybody is weary, if anybody is heavy laden, if anybody's tired, come to me and I will give you rest. And he says, take my yoke upon you, which is another way of saying, hey, come, come serve me. Come, come work for me. Come let me be your king. But why? He says, because I am gentle and lowly of heart. Learn from me, and you will find rest for your souls. See, what Jesus knows is something that is very true, but we often forget, which is that those are our two choices, that we can, we can serve Jesus as our king and find out the way life was meant to be lived and ultimately experience that peace deep in our souls, or we can be weary and heavy laden, burdened down by these other things that we're serving. So let me ask you another question. How can you tell who is on the throne of your life? How can you tell who is on the throne of your life? I want you to think about this question for a second, and I want to read you an excerpt from an article. This was published in ESPN back in October of 2011. This is about Peyton Manning, okay? Uh, former NFL quarterback, very successful. And this was written while he was recovering from a very serious uh, neck injury. And at this time, you know, he had been a very successful, won Super Bowls, Pro Bowl quarterback, one of the best ever, but he got in a really bad injury and he had to have surgery on his, on his neck and it was very serious, and you know, it was, his future was kind of up in the air. And I, I think this article is, is really interesting and telling and sheds light on what it looks like to center our life around something. I'm, I'm going to read this. This is what it says. It says, quote, the NFL's greatest control freak, talking about Peyton Manning, 
says the NFL's greatest control freak is learning the hard way that he doesn't control anything. On September 8th, when Manning would have typically been preparing for the, the Colts' preseason opener, he was under general anesthesia in Los Angeles. His neck sliced open as Dr. Robert Watkins Sr. and his son, Dr. Robert Watkins Jr., placed a piece of bone from Manning's hip between two collapsed vertebra. Recovery is estimated at three months, so there's a strong chance that Manning won't play this season, not unless the Colts are in playoff contention. Staring at his football mortality has rattled him. And listen to this. Football is his God, says one of Manning's friends. When your God is lifted away from you, how you handle it might change your life, end quote. So Peyton Manning had been living a life, and again, I don't know anything about his faith situation, but he was living a life with football at the center. Football's a good thing, right? It's a good thing. But he was living a life where football was king, where football was God. And he was finding out the hard way that football was not a gentle and lowly master. That when you give your life to football, you'll be burdened down with those expectations and the needs to constantly perform. Let me give you three questions to ask yourself. You know, for, for Peyton Manning in that situation, football was at the center of his life. Football was his God. Football was his king. And his king had been lifted away from him, had been taken away from him. And it said it rattled him. So it shook him to the core. Let me ask you three questions. These are kind of diagnostic questions. How can we tell who or what is on the throne of our lives? These three questions. Number one, what are you most willing to sacrifice for? What are you most willing to sacrifice for? What are you most willing to orient your entire life around? What are you glad to give up other things to make time for? What are you most willing to sacrifice for? What makes you most angry? What makes you most angry? Very often in that, like he was talking in this article, that football was Peyton Manning's God, his friend was saying, and his God was lifted away. Very often when our God is being lifted away from us, whether it's because of an injury or a, a health situation or a career situation, we get really angry. A really good diagnostic question to say, what is actually on the throne of my heart? What makes me the most angry? Number three, what are you most afraid of losing? What are you most afraid of losing? Remember last week we talked about our hope, and we talked about this idea that Jesus promises he'll wipe every tear away from every eye. Remember that? And I said that very many of us, including myself, when we read things like that, that Jesus is going to wipe away every tear from every eye, that he's going to comfort us 
that, that whatever has happened to us in this life, he's going to make it all better. That we hear that and we immediately want to call BS on it. Right? Because we think, well, sure, that might be the case for some things, but we think about a terrible thing that's happened to us in the past or a terrible thing that could happen to us in the future or a terrible thing that's happened to someone we love in the past or something that could happen to someone we love in the future, and we think, if that happened, I would be inconsolable. That is the most terrifying thing. There is no way that I could be comforted if I lost that or if that happened to me. Well, whatever that is for you, there's a good chance it has something to do with what's on the throne of your life. Now, it's really interesting. I, I don't think that many of us, or really many people at all, it's not as if we say, we wake up one morning and say, from now on, I'm going to worship Satan. Right? We don't usually do that. <laughs> we don't usually say, from now on, I'm going to, I don't need this God anymore. And sometimes people will do that. Maybe you've thought that before. Maybe you said that before. But, but usually that's not what it looks like when something else is creeping onto the throne of our, of our life. And, and to be honest, I mean, you know, it, it's usually not either that we get up one morning and say, you know what, from now on, I'm not living for God anymore. From now on, I'm living for money. I just want money. I'll do whatever it takes to get money. We usually don't say that, do we? If we said that, I mean, it sounds like a, a cheesy thing from like a, like a Charles Dickens novel or something like that. You know, I just want money. I just want power. It's not like in, in kind of in the cartoons where you got the little guy who wants to take over the world because he just wants power. That's not usually the way it works, Okay. Typically what it looks like in our lives, in your life, in, in my life, when something else is creeping up onto the throne of our, of our life, what it looks like is kind of like this. It's sort of like we subtly make a deal with God. Very subtly we make a deal with God and we say, God, I want to do everything your way. I'm going to do everything your way, God. You tell me to go to church, I'm going to go to church. You tell me to read my Bible, I'm going to read my Bible. You tell me to pray, I'm going to pray. You tell me to give some money, I'll even give some money. Shoot, I'll even, I'll even volunteer at Northwest Kids. A little plug for Northwest Kids. But God, all I want in return, all I want in return is, is just that you make sure I get this. God, I'm going to do, I'm going to, trust me, I'm, I'm not going to cut any corners on the Christian life, I'm gonna do all of this. And in return, you know, I'm not asking that you make me rich, I'm not asking that you make me, you know, this, an NBA player or something super powerful, all I'm asking is that you give me blank. And again, it's usually not something terrible, it's usually something like, all I'm asking is that you keep me healthy. All I'm asking is that you provide a spouse for me. All I'm asking is that you give me financial security. All I'm asking is that you help me to be successful at my job. And so outwardly it looks like we're disciples of Jesus. But actually inwardly 
something else has crept up onto the throne of our, of our life. Well, let me give you an example. You can go on to the next slide. Yeah, so, and again, like I said, very often it's, it's not bad things, it's good things. It's, it's even the best things in life, right, that, that slowly creep up onto the throne of, of, our, of our hearts. What does it look like? What does this look like with family, for example? Well, we all want a family that's happy and healthy, right? 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 Is that a bad thing to want that? No, it's not, is it? You know, we all, we all want people to love us. We want good relationships with our, with our parents. We want good relationships with our kids. We want good relationships with our spouse. Most of us desire to be married, right? It's something we all want. All want. We all want a generally healthy and, and happy family. We're not asking to be, you know, the richest people or to have, I don't know, have our kids go on to be Nobel Prize winners or something like that. But we, we all want a family that's generally healthy and happy, right? Well, what happens, how can you tell if family has slowly crept up onto the throne of your life? Well, the way you can tell is what happens when, like, like I talked about Peyton Manning, what happened when that God, what happened when that thing starts to be lifted away from you? What happens when it starts to be lifted away from you? What happens when your son comes home and he tells you he's dating somebody of the same sex? What happens when your daughter comes home and tells you, you know, I've been listening to my college professor, I've been reading this book, and I don't really know about the Bible anymore. I'm deconstructing. I don't know if I want to go to church anymore. What happens when your children just don't listen to you? What happens when you have little kids and you kind of just dream of having this really harmonious family, but it's just chaos? What happens when your kids aren't listening to you? What happens when your husband or your wife doesn't give you the empathy that you want? What happens when you're estranged from a family member that you care for a lot? What happens when that happy, healthy family, however you define it, starts to be lifted away from you? Well, in that moment, if family is on the throne of your life, you're gonna be devastated. You're gonna be devastated. Just like it said, Peyton Manning was facing his football mortality and it rattled him. If in those moments when those things happen and, and things like that happen to, to all of us at some point, if family is on the throne of your life, it will rattle you. Maybe you'll lose your temper. You'll find yourself being manipulative or controlling, saying, well, you, you better come to church or, or trying, to, trying to, to preach at people, or being passive aggressive. Maybe you'll even be tempted to compromise your beliefs in those moments. Maybe you'll be tempted to say, well, do I really need to take the Bible that seriously? Maybe I don't, maybe I don't. I say, is it really wrong for me to for, for me to have an affair, probably in my situation, maybe God would, would say it was okay. 
you might start to, to compromise. That's what it looks like if family is on the throne of your life. Well, on the other hand, what does it look like when Jesus is the king of your family? What does it look like when you go through the same struggles, the same challenges with Jesus on the throne of your life? Well, what does Jesus say about family? Well, he says that one of the primary ways that we show that we are his disciples, one of the primary ways that we can glorify him is by loving our families, by loving our wives like Christ loves the church, by submitting to our husbands just as the church submits to Christ, by showing love to our children just like God loves us, by submitting to our parents. So does the Bible want us to have happy and healthy families? Absolutely. Does the Bible teach us a lot about how to have happy and healthy families? Absolutely. But at the same time, Jesus also says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And Jesus says, you can't serve two masters. You're gonna love one and hate the other. You're gonna hate the one and love the other. You can't serve both God and money. You can't serve as your ultimate king, both God and and family. Well, what does it look like if Jesus is on the throne as king of your family in those moments? Well, it won't be easy, but you'll be able to say along with Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 8. This is what he says. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. That you'll be sad, you'll be grieved, but you won't be without hope. And at the same time, you'll be comforted because in those moments, you'll be able to experience intimacy with Jesus. You'll be able to experience the fact that Jesus knows how you feel when you're estranged from that family member or when somebody that you love is not walking with the Lord or when somebody's treating you unfairly or when you just can't connect with somebody the way you want to that Jesus is the one where at the very end of his ministry, when he'd done all, all that he had come to do except for die and then rise from the dead again, he's sitting on a, on a hillside looking over at his children in Jerusalem and he starts weeping. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how many times have I just wanted to gather you under my wings? How many times have I wanted to be close to you? How many times have I wanted to be with you, to love you, but you were not willing? That Jesus knows how you feel, and you'll be able to experience intimacy with him because he's right there with you. And you'll also be able to be comforted by the fact that regardless of whatever baggage your kids might have, regardless of whatever bad decisions they make, regardless of whatever failures or regrets you might have as a parent or as a son or whatever, you can remember that, Jesus, that God, God the Father raised his son perfectly. God the Father raised his son perfectly, perfectly. But he allowed his son to be cut off from him, to be estranged from him, he turned his face away from his son. 
so that if your children, no matter what they've gone through, no matter what mistakes they make, if they ever turn back to him, they can immediately be reconciled. And that even if they're not, Jesus promises that one day, in this strange way that we can't comprehend or understand, he's going to wipe even that tear away from your eye. And what's cool, too, is it's not just that we'll be comforted and we won't lose hope in the midst of those difficulties in our families if Jesus is on the throne. We'll also be able to actively serve. You'll be able to pursue that estranged family member without manipulation, without withdrawing, without being overbearing, without losing our temper. You'll be able to speak the truth and love to your children without trying to control them, without losing your temper at them. You'll be able to pursue the things that it looks like to be healthy, to be happy as a family, but not with family in the driver's seat, not with family on the throne. So let me end just by asking you again, who is on the throne of your life? Is it possible that you have experienced recently a God being lifted away from you? I wonder if anybody during the pandemic has experienced a God of some sort being lifted away from you. What would it look like if that area, whatever it is, whether for you it's family or maybe it's your career, maybe it's money, maybe it's performance, whatever it is, what would it look like if that area, that good thing that you tend to let creep up on the throne of your life, what would it look like if you fully submitted this area of your life to Jesus? What would it look like if you honestly in your heart trusted that Jesus' plan for this area of your life, whether it's your career, your family, your finances, whatever it is, your relationships, if you honestly trusted that Jesus' plan for that area of your life is better than your plan. And maybe you hear this today and you think, man, because my idol's been lifted away from me, I, I need to repent of some things. I need to confess areas that I've been either avoiding certain conversations or I've been maybe being overbearing or I've been losing my temper or I've been manipulative or whatever the case may be. You can take a couple minutes as we're singing this, this last song to do that, to spend some time with God, grab somebody else to pray with you if, if you would like. Well, I'm really excited about this series on the Sermon on the Mount. We're gonna be seeing over and over again this life that Jesus is inviting us to live. And again, it's not go live this life. It's come and learn from me and you will be able to find rest for your souls living a life under the lordship of King Jesus. Now, let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for being our God. Thank you for being our King. And Lord, I ask today that you would show each of us, show us the true condition of our hearts, God. Um, whatever idols, whatever gods, whatever kings we have besides you, I pray that you would lovingly lift those away from us, that you would help us to submit even those areas of our life to you. And I pray that as we go through this series on the Sermon on the Mount, Show us what it looks like in our relationships, in our finances, in every area, 
to serve you as our king. In Jesus' name, amen.